everyone. Welcome to episode two of Time Out. Uh, I'm Tone. Now I'm Marine. Tonight we're going to be talking about the Last Dance documentary. Um, we are going to be breaking down episodes one and two. Um, for those who are not familiar, the Last Dance is a ten-part documentary on ESPN about the last season that Michael Jordan had with the Chicago Bulls. Um, growing up, you know, I know the Chicago Bulls were definitely someone that I always followed. Uh, Rain, I know you got a lot of family in Chicago, so could you just kind of touch base a little bit on that aspect? Yeah, so I think for me, as a kid growing up, I didn't really understand like the things that were going on in the front office, like behind the scenes. Uh, all I remember watching the Bulls are, you know, Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, Kerr, Kukoc, right? Longley, the list goes on. But what was interesting to me was like, you know, the crowd situation and the whole front office situation and how, like how much pressure there was and how much drama there was in that 98 season. So I'm really excited to talk about this and also really excited to see, you know, the next few episodes um, and what like unfolded. Um, because, you know, at the time, like I mentioned, we, we were still very young. So Definitely. it's good to see all this now um, from that perspective. Yeah, I think even as a nine-year-old kid, I really wasn't really familiar with what a general manager was. So, uh, you know, looking back on it now, you know, I'm really excited to kind of dive into, like you said, the front office uh, mumbo jumbo that was going on with them, um, as well as just kind of how MJ's career really started out. You know, um, obviously we weren't alive yet, but, uh, you know, when he – first started to make his mark into the league. That's kind of when we were growing up. So uh, really excited to talk to you about this. So um, just, you know, first and foremost, what do you think was your biggest takeaway from episode one? Yeah, so I think my biggest takeaway was there's kind of two things that stood out, um, obviously, like the Jerry Krause situation. So the type of person that he was, but like one thing that really surprised me was like how the players also treated him. Mm -hmm. um, and then kind of like the early days of, of MJ, you know, before he was MJ, like uh, talking about him at uh, UNC um, and then like his rookie season and really the impact that he had um, just on the Bulls specifically, because before he came in into, in, into the Bulls, like they were kind of like the laughing stock of the league uh, and how he kind of like elevated um, his teammates and the impact that he had on the city of like Chicago as a whole. Um, so, yeah, those were the things that kind of stood out to me in the first episode. Definitely. So, uh, you know, for those of you who don't follow Chicago sports a lot, uh, from 1980 to 1983, the Bulls were the joke of the league. You know, they had indoor soccer teams in Chicago, drawn more people than the Bulls, which was, you know, kind of something that was head scratching to me when I first heard uh, those stats in episode one. But my biggest takeaway is definitely how Jerry Krause was as a general manager. You know, it's really kind of surprising to me to see all the backlash that the players had for the guy who picked them to be in the organization in the first place. You know, I'm yeah. um, just kind of looking back at the Warriors right now. You know, imagine if Steph didn't like playing for Bob Myers. You know, imagine yeah. if Clay and Bob Myers didn't get along so well. You know, it's just really blessed to be work be working for the in, in, uh, organization that they are a part of right now, you know, and just kind of looking back on Jerry Cross as a GM, you know, just alienated people, uh, really needed uh, credit for the Bulls' success. He never really wanted to give it to the players or the coaches. Yep. One thing that really stood out is that he said, organizations win titles, not players and coaches. And, you know, I think it was either MJ or 
Pippen saying like, you know, I never seen you box out for an offense rebound one time, you know, so how could he, yep. you know, be the one who's actually getting all those wins, you know? Um, what are some of your thoughts on uh, Jerry Krause as a GM? And, you know, imagine if that was a GM nowadays, how would that come across? Yeah, I think one thing that is like really um, made me think about like not just Jerry Krause, but just like success, right, in, in sports is like it's really hard to maintain like winning. It's just hard to win. It's hard to maintain a winner. It's hard to make everyone happy, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't come easy. And like having somebody like Jerry Krause where like egos get in the way, um, it really just shows like for the Warriors, everybody just thought like, oh, okay, Kevin Durant came and it's so easy. Everybody blends together so well, um, you know, and that's that. But no, like we saw like, you know, drama can tear teams apart. And that's what kind of stood out to me with Jerry Krause as a GM. It's like, you know, you have all this success, uh, but you're not getting the credit that you think you deserve. Um, but it's like, you're not the one, you know, there on the floor, right? Playing 82 games in a regular season right, and right. going into the playoffs, right? Your blood, sweat, tears, uh, getting all these injuries, things like that. But yes, you were the architect of the team. Like you're the reason why, like you said, most of the players are there. So, I mean, I personally like, you know, don't agree with his thinking around like organizations win titles. Like, yes, it does start from great drafting, right? Great scouting starts mm-hmm. from the top. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's the players, right? It's the players that, that, that get it done for you. Um, and so I thought it was, it was really sad to to see that kind of unfold from, from Kraus. Like you've won five titles in the last, what, six years, seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, he was so adamant on breaking up that team and like rebuilding um, the Bulls to just get credit, you know, for, you know, what he's done. Um, and that's crazy to, to think that he had that meeting with Bill Jackson and was like, hey, like, this is straight up your last season. And he was unhappy about it. Just crazy because, like, Bill Jackson is one of the greatest coaches of all time. And to, you know, make MJ, um, which we'll probably talk about uh, in the next episode, but to make MJ and alienate him, um, you know, he knows that he want, he only wanted to play for Phil Jackson. And to say that, that was kind of crazy to me too. And then, um, which we'll talk about in a bit, like his relationship with the top two players, MJ um, and Pippen, which was crazy. Uh, because like you said, imagine like, imagine Steph or Clay, like berating Bob Myers, right? In today's no game, which is- <laughs> No yeah. way, not even yeah. close. And uh, one thing with Kraus that I really want to touch on is something that he said to Phil Jackson is saying like, I don't care if you win 82 games, you're still yeah. not going to be the coach next season. You know, like imagine- at any job that you have hey you could do the best job that you're gonna do be perfect you know and you're still not gonna have a job next year that is just crazy to me just to think about and you know if if a gm was like that nowadays i really feel like you know he wouldn't be a gm in this league you know it's it's definitely a player first league nowadays you know and uh, i know that you know upper management had a lot of leverage back then and uh you know i'm kind of glad that you know it's a lot different now but you know just just kind of seeing how it was back then is just pretty crazy honestly yeah it's like you have all-time greats right on on one single team like multiple like all-time greats on one single team and honestly like what it came down to was just money dude it was just money yeah um it was also like respect and the fact that like they knew all this was going down and they still won their sixth title is crazy because like as a Warriors fan, on what happened last season with the whole Draymond and KD saga, like, 
man, like I wasn't even part of the team, but like I was like, man, there's so much drama. Like, are they yeah. are they going to be able to pull it off? Uh, I mean, if Katie didn't get injured, who knows? But yeah, I, I just think it's crazy that they were still able to like pull it off after all this. Yeah, you know, I I agree with you when it comes down to KD. You know, I think if he didn't get hurt, I think the Warriors definitely did do win it yeah. last year, and it just shows shows you that you know there could be a lot of drama, but at the end of the day, the players want to win. You know, and I I know MJ MJ's mindset was definitely to always win first. You know, uh, some really big parallel that I saw um, in episode one was a lot of the way that MJ operated um, really resembles the way that Kobe Bryant. Um, sure. You know, he, he he always had the Mamba mentality, and I feel like MJ already had that mentality before it was kind of like a thing. You know, like even looking at um, his days in North Carolina. Yep. You know, he got he hit the game winner in 82, really gave him the confidence to excel. Um, over the next two seasons, he improved. Um, and Roy Williams, who is the current North Carolina coach, just had a lot of really good things to say about MJ. And uh, some of the quotes, ones, MJ is the only player to turn it on and off. And, you know, you can definitely see um, he was just a cerebral scorer and he could definitely turn it on um, when he wanted to. And there was really no turn it off because, you know, he was just that type of player. Um and one of the things that I really loved is that MJ would say, like, nobody will ever work as hard as me. And, yeah. um, you know, I I feel like anyone could say that that's the mindset that they want to have, no matter what job they have, whether they play sports or not. Like, you know, you got to make sure that you're working hard each and every day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with you on that. And that's a good point. Like, MJ kind of established that mentality before it was Bamba mentality. You know, it just right. wasn't called anything. and after that uh, 82 championship game winner that you talked about that he hit, it kind of get like, I remember him saying in the, in the uh, documentary that that's what kind of gave him the confidence to be like, okay, like, you know, um, I am, I can be the best. Because when he came in, he talked to Roy Williams. It's like, hey, I want to be the best player ever to walk at UNC. Yeah. Right. And then I think that's where he said, nobody will ever work as hard as, uh, as hard as him. And another thing that I wanted to call out was like James Worthy was his teammate. Yeah. And I thought it was funny that when they interviewed James Worthy, he was like, yeah, you know, when Michael came in, like, you know, I was the best player. But like after about a week or two, like we all knew that Michael was the best player. So that just like shows, you know, the type of mentality that he had at that like young age um, going to, you know, uh, UNC, that type of program under Dean Smith. Like mm-hmm. that was just you just knew that that was the beginning of like greatness. Right. To come. Yeah. And in that in that championship game, you know the the player was actually drawn up for James Worthy, but he, you know, in the huddle, he MJ was like, you know, if I'll I'll be open on the on that side, you know, yep. and, and he's gonna make the shot if, if if you give him the ball, and that's exactly what he did, and definitely uh, was the start of something really special, you know. And once he got into the league, you know, I I really like I know we talked about the NFL draft yesterday, but. Uh, with the NBA draft of 1984, you know, um, obviously everyone knew Hakeem was going to go number one, you know, yeah. coming out of Houston. Houston had the top pick. But um, imagine, you know, if MJ actually went number two to Portland and let's say that the Blazers were like, you know what, we have Clyde Drexler already. He plays the same position as MJ. Let's just draft them both. You know, imagine if, you know, they did that and they were like the birth of small ball, you know, back then having two really great guards. But Fortunately for the entire world, they took Sam Bowie at number two. So Chicago got to pick, you know, MJ at three. And um, after that, you know, really the rest is history, right? 
Yeah, it's crazy because, like, I mean, I would have done the same thing if I was Portland in that situation. Like, you already had a star player in Drexler that plays the same position as MJ. Like, nobody would have known, right, the right. the greatness of MJ. So, like, they made the right move in that in that point in time. But it would have been crazy to imagine them kind of playing side by side. Like you said, like, small ball. Um, you got two, one of the greatest guards of, like, all time on yeah. the same team. Um, but, you know, fortunately, you went to Chicago because if you didn't, then I wouldn't be able to watch, like, all those – you know, finals games growing up as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it, w- it was it was funny to see, like, in his rookie season, I think there was, like, a bit about when they were, I think it was, what, preseason. Um, they were, like, in a hotel, uh, and MJ was, like, looking for his teammates. He goes into one of the rooms, <laughs> and, and then he sees, like, oh, yeah. a bunch of drugs, right, like, women and stuff like that. And he's like, you know what, like, I'm good. Like, I'm going to stay, stay out of this. And so, like, his rookie season was really him keeping to himself. Um, because one thing that um, that was said, the reason why he decided to go to the NBA was because of Dean Smith, you know, mm-hmm. noticed that, you know, he was getting comfortable at UNC. Like, MJ was, like, settling into the college life, um, settling into the surroundings. He was a big dog on campus, right? He was a man on campus. And so he thought, like, going to the league and, of course, being he, – he would have he been top pick, which he was, top three um, – would help him out, like develop and mature uh, as a man. And, you know, as of what, 21, 22 at the time, going into that situation and he's like, you know what, I'm good. Um, And then just keeping to himself and like always like getting better. And his mentality was like, you know what, like I'm going to change this like culture around, like I'm going to change this team around, not by talking because, you know, I'm a rookie, but I'm going to show it by my play. Like just, that just tells you everything right there. You know, a rookie, a kid coming in, and taking it upon himself, like, okay, this franchise has, you know, hasn't been great the past few years, but I know that I can turn this around. Um, I thought that was, like, really huge. Like, there's not a lot of guys that can have that mentality and do that uh, going into their rookie season, especially to a franchise that hasn't accomplished much for the past few years. Definitely. And really being uh, at that at that prime young age, you know, I really couldn't tell tell you the things that we were doing we were 20 21 years old you know what i mean but it was de- we were definitely not walking away from parties you know we'll just mm-hmm. leave those details out but uh you know just really looking at mj i just it, it's just pretty awesome to kind of see someone as humble like that and you know it, i really love the fact that in the one-on-one interview with him on the documentary you know he's got like he's got his uh drink sitting next to him uh he, you know he's always smoking cigars and stuff you know he's yeah. like he's that type of guy nowadays but you know when he was young and when you would think he would be doing all the crazy stuff yeah he was just all about business you know probably yep. first in the gym last last to leave you know and just he always had that mindset to always be getting better each and every day and yep. you know I, I i really looked up to that when i was a kid you know uh one of the funniest things that i would say is like with my dad he would he would always be like oh you know like who's who's the best dad in the world you know and i would always be like Michael Jordan, you know, just, yeah. just as a joke, you know, and, yeah. you know, uh, my dad always hated that, but, um, <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, like it, it was just the mentality, you know, he's always a winner, you know, he never accepted losing. And, uh, yep. that was definitely something that separated him, um, as one of the all-time greats. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think another thing, um, that I wanted to talk about, which I alluded to earlier was like, you know, the city of Chicago during that time, like mid eighties, Everybody was a Bears fan, right? I think they won right. the Super Bowl in 85. Um, Super Bowl shuffle, yeah. Yep. And then you had the, 
um, Cubs, which is like the North Siders were cheering for them. And then the South side, they're cheering for the White Sox. Had some fans cheering for the Blackhawks, but like nobody was like, was going to any of the Bulls games. Like I think one of the first uh, images of like MJ's rookie season, like the stadium was empty. Like it was practically empty. empty. Yeah. And so I think to, to inject some excitement in basketball um, in that city, um, like I mentioned in the documentary, they're uh, like a hardworking class. Uh, they believe in like putting your nose down, right? Putting in that mm-hmm. work and, you know, just getting up when you get knocked down. Literally the epitome of like what MJ was about. And like that culminated in him uh, winning the rookie of the year um, during the, his rookie season. And it was just great to see like fans getting excited about like the Bulls. I think that was like something that was overlooked uh, in the first episode, like that quick bit and segment on like how one guy impacted an entire city that already had like all of these like different sports teams to cheer for. Um, But like now all the attention was like on him. And instead of shying away from that, he like really excelled in the spotlight. He's like, yeah, give me that and I'll give you some and more, right? Like doing that, that type of stuff. It goes back to, you know, the, that Mamba mentality. Definitely. And so um, one of the real turning points of that season for MJ, like uh, something that I remember just seeing highlights of is the dunk contest. Yep. You know, um, that was probably one of his real coming out parties other than, you know, that game, his third game of the season against the Bucks, where he really went off for the team. But, you know, just kind of looking looking back on it nowadays, you know, I, I, I wish more people did the dunk contest. You know, yep, I agreed. wish I wish we got to see LeBron in a dunk contest, you know, especially yep. like when he was up and coming. That would have been pretty awesome, you know. But one of the things that you said uh, that I really um, agree with is just how he never shied away from that spotlight. You know, yep. like they they asked for a superstar and they and Chicago got the best one that, you know, you can you can see in your entire lifetime. So, yeah, pretty awesome stuff there. Um, you know, with, they wrapped up the first episode with uh, Phil Jackson just basically naming their final season, The Last Dance. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I really think that that just really shows the type of person that Phil Jackson is. Is like, even though he knows that this is going to be the last season, they, were, they weren't going to let up. They were going to go out there and win. You know, yeah. they weren't they weren't going to just, you know, go down with the ship. They were they were going to go down and take some people with them, you know, and I, I just thought that that was pretty awesome, too. Yeah. And like one thing to follow up on that, like, you know, Steve Kerr was on that team. Right. And he kind of right. had like a similar situation like last season. Uh, I mean, although he didn't know that, you know, Katie was going to leave. Right. Mm-hmm. But like a lot of people like him, Clay, Draymond's contract was up the following season. Like watching the watching the most recent news like Draymond was like yes yeah, Steve he tried to do the best that he could to like help them focus on just winning and stuff like that mm-hmm. um but at the end of the day I mean they did they did get as far as they did and like you said if Katie was healthy which I definitely 100% agree they would have won like I would think that that this season definitely like like Steve Kerr probably was looking back at this specific season like how can I bring some of like the tactics and stuff that Phil did during that 98 season and bring it to, to now. Cause like now he's like, he's Phil, right? Yeah. So, he, he's exactly Phil, yeah. you know, and, and he has the MJ and the Pippen and the yep. Rodman. And, you know, I, I feel like our management as a warrior fan, they did a way better job than Jerry Krause could ever do yeah. um, in his lifetime, you know, and 
I know Bob Myers tried to keep it together for as long as he could. And I think if we won it, I think KD probably would have stayed. But, you yeah. know, that's neither here nor there. But, um, yeah, I definitely agree with you um, when it comes to Steve Kerr kind of being that Phil Jackson type. And I feel like Steve did a great job, you know. Like, yeah, Draymond and KD had that, you know, big argument on the sidelines. But, you know, as we have learned in – you know, from from the Bulls, these things kind of happen. You know, like yeah. when it comes when it comes to winning, it's hard. You know, it's not like you can just run out there and just expect to dominate. No, like you have to work hard in practice. You know, you have to yeah. trust your teammates. There has to be that camaraderie at the end of the day. And you know, I think the head coach is the one who is the one who actually really keeps it all together. You know, because I, I definitely think that Phil Jackson is you know that straw that stirs the drink with the bulls you know yeah mj is the greatest of all time but i don't think he would have been where he's at without phil jackson yeah for sure for sure agreed cool so uh that about wraps it up for uh episode one all right rain we're going to be moving on to episode number two which talked a lot about scotty pippen michael jordan's number two man on the bulls that season so a lot of the Scotty situation is something that I didn't really know too much about when I was a kid. But, uh, Rain, what are some of your thoughts on Scotty's situation? I mean, for Scotty, if I was in his shoes, I definitely would have done the same thing that he did in terms of holding out, you know, um, the surgery for that season instead of doing it right after the 97 season, which he could have done during the summer, heal up and then play right away in the start of the season. I would have exactly done what he did and, and wait because Jerry Krause said anybody is up for, for trade and he made it clear that he was going to trade Pippen, right? And back then, players didn't have a lot of power. Like they couldn't, you know, not like today where players, you know, have all the control, in my opinion, uh, they have all the power now. Um, but back then, that was the only way that Scotty could kind of fight back and spite, you know, Jerry Krause. And so... At the end of the day, my my view is that you have to look out for yourself at the end of the day because as players, you're the ones that are out there grinding 48 minutes, 82 games, 100 plus games into the playoffs. And for him to be that underpaid uh, for being arguably probably the second best player, not only on the Bulls, but in the entire league during that time, I definitely agree. I definitely would have done the same thing that he did. So you're telling me that no matter what, you're going to put yourself over the team in that situation. I just, I really did not agree with Scotty's opinion or decision at all. I think at the end of the day, as a player, you are under contract. You put your name on the dotted line whenever you sign it, and your word is your bond. And if you're not going to show up for, you know, however long you feel like you shouldn't have to play, like that is bullshit to me. I think that Michael Jordan was totally um, hitting the nail on the head when he called Scotty selfish in the documentary. Um, I just think Scotty should have thought of the team, man. You know, they were on this really great run as a team. It wasn't the Chicago Scotties. It was the Chicago Bulls. And I just don't think it's fair for an athlete, athlete to think that they are better than the team. You know, even if guys nowadays hold out, I just think that's, you know, that's BS, man. You're you're part of a team. It doesn't take one person to win a championship. Uh, obviously, you know, one of the corniest lines is there, there's no I in team. Um, but, you know, there is an I in commitment. And you should be committed to your team. And you should be committed to winning. And at the end of the day, all you should be trying to do is go out there and win a championship. Yeah. I mean, 
I could see the other side too, but nowadays, like you mentioned, players like Anthony Davis, like, do you agree with him telling the Pelicans that he wanted to get traded and he didn't play for that second half of the season? I do not agree with Anthony Davis at all. And I hate the fact that he cried his way out of New Orleans and just really showed what kind of player he is. Like, you know, just because you're not winning in an organization, that doesn't mean you just quit and go to L.A. Maybe put in some more work. Maybe talk to the front office and be like, hey, why don't you get me another star? Don't get me a DeMarcus Cousins. Why don't you get me someone who could shoot the ball? I don't need another rebounder. I can do that. But at the end of the day, I really just think these guys got to think about the team more. You know, when you're a kid and you're playing sports, um, it's not about yourself, man. It's about the team. You know, I I feel bad for college players that don't get paid. But, hey, they're playing for the name on the front, not the name on the back. And I think in this situation, going back to Scotty, you know, he was only worried about Scotty. He was not worried about the Bulls at all. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think one thing to emphasize your point was even MJ said it himself, right? In the in the documentary, he was like, you know, Scotty, Scotty, I didn't agree with it. You made a selfish decision. Um, but, you know, I I understand why he did it. But I mean, I hear you. I hear you. It's all about it's all about the team. Um, there's no I in team. But I don't know, man. That was a really tough situation to be in, especially the type of person that Kraus was. I think he just fueled it even more. I th- honestly, if it was a different GM, a different person, Scotty probably wouldn't have done that, to be honest, right? I mean, I think it just comes down to people that are involved, the whole situation. But yeah, I definitely would have done what Scotty did, even though you adamantly disagree with me. Agree to disagree. That's something that we usually do anyway. So, um, you know, we can just move forward from this, honestly, but um, just know, you know, there is no iron team. As you've heard a million times since you were a kid, there is no iron team, and I will continue to remind you that. There is a me, though. I'm glad you can spell rain. Thank you. But so, <laughs> you know, as we go back to the documentary, you know, I really want to talk to you about Scotty's journey. Um, a lot of this is going to be about Michael Jordan's journey, and, you know, we, we are going to touch on that in a second, but, you know, I didn't really know that Scotty was so was from such a small town. I didn't know that, you know, he was from UCA. I don't. I couldn't even tell you that if if you asked me yesterday. But uh, you know, that is the University of Central Arkansas. I don't even know what the centralmost city of Arkansas is, but that's where Scotty Pippen went. That's where you know he started out at. And you know, I just want to see what you think about his story in general. Yeah, I think his story is really the epitome of rags to riches, right? He grew up in really, he grew up poor, like his brother said in the documentary. He's like, hey, you know, our parents did everything that they could for us. Man, we didn't even know that we were poor, right? They were just having fun, going outside, playing with each other. And Scotty's story was, is really, really interesting to me because I, like you, I had no idea, right, his upbringing. And for him going to UCA as the equipment manager, right? He started off as the equipment manager and he trained with the team as if he was a part of the team, right? As if he was one of the players because he figured out or he understood that most of these athletes, they're probably going to lose their scholarship because of grades, right? And so for him to capitalize on that really shows what kind of you know work ethic, uh, what kind of strength that he had, determination, right? Perseverance, eventually got a scholarship. He grew like crazy from his freshman to sophomore year. I think it was about five inches. And the one bit that I loved about his origin story was when his best friend was asked, 
like, yeah, did you, you know, Scotty always knew that he was going to go to the NBA, but, you know, did you think that he was going to go to NBA? And he was like, nope. Right. And that was, that was like really funny. And that, that told the, the entire story right there and how Scotty always believed deep down that, you know, he needed to get away from, uh, you know, central Arkansas and his upbringing. And there was bigger things out there for him. And for somebody to always have that dream and, and chase it and eventually make it come into fruition, man, that like kudos to Scotty, man, because his upbringing was really tough and he could have just threw in the towel like a long, you know, a long time ago. But for him to, you know, get drafted top five pick overall in the NBA, right? And then the Bulls trade for him, the rest was history. So I love how you talk about his getting drafted fifth overall. And um, in the documentary, one of the experts on the NBA was talking about how you probably never heard of Scottie Pippen before he got drafted fifth overall. You know, I feel like he definitely hit the nail on the head talking about his backstory. And it really makes me think of how great of a team him and MJ were because of their backgrounds. You know, Scottie was the, Scottie was definitely the rags to riches story, but you know, MJ came up with a lot of racism, you know, that was definitely something that motivated him to get out of his hometown um, he was really competitive with his brothers and he really just strived to make his dad proud. You know, I, it's, that's just one of those storylines that you probably see a lot of these athletes going through. And Michael Jordan definitely obviously came out on top, but, you know, I think his and Scotty's story really intertwine in a way where you really wouldn't know that unless you watch this documentary. Uh, you couldn't yeah. pick up a stat from 97 or 96 and looking at these two guys and know how great of a team they were. Yeah, they won rings, but it was definitely something under the surface that brought them together and kept them together for so long. Yeah, it was like the perfect match, right? Like you're kind of alluding to, it was the intangibles about both of them. That there was just something about both of their upbringings, their origins, right? What they've been through just to get to the league, right? Um, that made it really just a, a perfect match with the dynamic duo, arguably one of the best uh, duos in NBA history. I could think of one more, but that might be a homer pick. We'll save that for another day. Um, but looking back into the documentary with MJ's origin, you know, he got cut from his sophomore high school. I'm sorry. He got cut from his high school basketball team as a sophomore. Imagine being that coach. You think he ever coached a minute of basketball after that year? And they found out that he cut Michael Jordan when Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan. Definitely don't think he's out there coaching, you know, maybe in the PBL or something, but I wouldn't want him coaching me. Uh, But, you know, with MJ, I really, really love the fact on some things that Roy Williams said, uh, you know, when he got to North Carolina and just the work ethic. And obviously, you know, that work ethic is something that he brought into the NBA, which led us to 1986. Uh, That's before Pippen. Uh, This is when MJ was still, you know, the leader of the Bulls and really the only guy that they had uh, third game of the season rain uh, MJ was playing the dubs and he actually broke a bone in his left foot. And I couldn't believe this, but uh, it was actually the first time that he ever got hurt. And the first time that he ever missed a game, the 1986 season was definitely one that went down in the record books, you know? So MJ gets hurt, you know, he's not allowed to play. And then what does he do? Rain? He plays, right? Like he's not allowed to play. He has never been injured. He's sitting on the bench. He's itching to get out there. He's restless. And he, you know, goes back to UNC with the Bulls' permission. But what the Bulls didn't know was that he was actually playing, 
you know, three on three, four on four, five on five uh, basketball. And once he was actually cleared to play by the doctors, this is one of my favorite parts of episode two was the doctors told him, hey, there's a 10% chance that you would injure your foot again. And if you do, that's it. Your career is over, right? That would end his career. And MJ was like, okay, cool. So that means that there's a 90% chance that I'll be fine, right? I look at the glass half full. You guys are looking at it half empty because the front office, they didn't want him to go back out there to risk, um, you know, that 10% of him, you know, ending his career. And eventually MJ got them to come to an agreement or a compromise where MJ would play, you know, 14 minutes uh, per game, right? And I think this Something that's overlooked here is this was kind of the starting point where MJ, I want to say maybe started losing a little bit of respect for the front office or just the trust started to um, disappear here um, during this, during this moment, because, you know, MJ's mentality is we need to win no matter what, right? No matter what we, we, it's all about winning. Right. And, you know, I don't want a losing attitude of, okay, I'll sit out for the rest of this season, re, uh, continue my rehab, and, you know, for us to tank and get a good draft pick, right? For him, it's, I need to be in there. If I can play, I can play. If you're saying I have 90% chance to be fine, I'm going to be fine, and I'll do whatever it takes to, you know, win uh, for the team. There's no way that we're going to tank just for to get a good draft pick. Man, Rain, you brought up a lot of really good points there, but I just want to bring it back a little bit and just imagine – Steph, right? He's hurt. And the Bulls, like the Warriors, they're not going to really do anything this season. You know, we're probably going to do something if, you know, Steph's there, but, you know, he's not. And so imagine if Steph Curry on the low starts playing two on two and then three on three and then ends up playing five on five without telling Steve Kerr or Bob Myers. And then he freaking messes his hand up and he never gets to play again. Could you imagine that nowadays? I am so baffled that MJ actually pulled this off and they ended up actually letting him play again. Yeah, yeah, that's insane because back then MJ was playing, what, 40-plus minutes a game, almost the entire game if he could. Nowadays, you know, players are doing load management and all these things to, you know, preserve themselves for the playoffs, right, Uh, for the finals, whatever it may be. And yeah, I can't even <laughs> I can't even imagine that if, if Steph actually, you know, did what MJ did, like I, you know, I would just be like, whoa, like what's what's going on here, right? And so I, I think it's also different, you know, different eras, different times, but you know, bringing up bringing up Steph, that that's a good that's a good parallel there. Like I couldn't imagine if that was done today. I would just be like, there's no way, dude. Like why would you even why would you even do that? Why would you even risk? and put him in that position yeah definitely uh, especially with social media nowadays i don't really think steph could get away with that but uh just just the thought of it just kind of really makes me think you know uh but so the bulls actually ended up letting mj come back and he had to be on a minutes restriction and i know you talked a little bit about load management but what mj got to do back in 86 was play 14 minutes per game seven minutes per half uh, it could be the first seven minutes, the last seven minutes. It could have been any seven minutes in the half, but that's all you get. Can't be 14 minutes total and one second. It can't be 14 minutes total and 10 seconds. It can be 13 minutes or 59 seconds, but 14 minutes, 14 minutes max. So 
one of my favorite parts of the documentary so far in episodes one and two is talking about MJ playing that final game against Indiana for the last playoff spot. So in order to be the eighth seed, where they would end up playing the Boston Celtics in the next round, um, they had to beat Indiana. And so they travel to Indiana. MJ's on this time restriction. And then there's 30 seconds left in the entire game. Time restriction is up. So Rain, management wanted the coach to sit MJ. 14 minutes are up. This is the rule. You cannot play MJ one more second or else you lose your job. What are you doing in this situation with your season on the line? All right. So to stay consistent with the theme of putting yourself first before everybody, in this situation, if I was a coach, I would definitely sit him out and not let him play. Okay. So here's why. Here's why I would do it. So number one, let's look at what's in front of us if we do win, right? Like you mentioned, you're going to go up against the Boston Celtics, which was the best team during that era, right? During that decade, it was them and the Lakers, and you're going to go up against that powerhouse team. So do you really think that the Bulls in reality have a shot at even beating them in that series? No, right? And on the other side, okay, if we put Michael in, if we do, um, you know, if we do disobey the front office and let him play, you know, uh, longer than 14 minutes, what's in front of us? You, you get fired as a coach, right? You get fired. And who knows even if you win or lose the game. So if they do lose the game, you have a draft pick, uh, a high draft pick coming up, and then you can build alongside of Michael. Now, I'm not saying that don't go out and do whatever it takes to win the game, but I'm just saying there's the two sides. It's either you get the Celtics or you get the draft pick, a high draft pick. You can probably draft somebody really, really good out of college, pair them together with Michael, and then you can build off of those two players. Like, which which scenario would you like more, Tone? Man, I'll tell you, Rain. If I was the coach of the Chicago Bulls in that 1986 season, and that's what my boss says to me, I'm putting it out on the table. MJ is going back in and we are winning this game because I don't care if we play the Boston Celtics or the Boston Bruins or the Boston Red Sox. I am going to go up there and I'm going to beat them because I have Michael Jordan. And the fact that I just put him back into this game, me and him are really cool now. And so F you to management. I'm out here to play to win the game. Thank you, Herm Edwards. But that is exactly what I would do. And hey, I put it on the table. So I'm going to live with my decision. Okay. Okay. And then, so in reality, what ends up happening though, right? So MJ continues to sit and then eventually John Paxson hits that game winner. And that footage was so hilarious because he kind of just threw it up and it looked like he was just, you know, hoping for the best. And it, eventually the, <laughs> the ball went in the basket and they won. Right. And so they go on to face the Boston Celtics in that first round. Let's keep in mind also the Bulls won 30 games to be the eighth seed that season, 30 games. There's no way a team's going to make the playoffs nowadays winning 30 games. Just want to put that out there. Um, unless you're in the East. Yeah. Maybe unless you're like Orlando or something, but yeah. So they go play the Celtics in the first round of the playoffs stone. So I want to talk more about this now and kind of dive into really, this is the shift 
from Michael Jordan to MJ, in my opinion. Like, this is where he made a statement. This is where he established himself as, hey, like, Larry Bird and, and Magic Johnson were the best players in the league during that time. Uh, for him to, you know, play the Celtics, play Larry Bird and that amazing team, and to kind of say, hey, guys, I'm coming, right? I'm coming for you. Um, in, a, in a couple of years, like, that torch is going to be passed to me. This series is probably one of the most important series that MJ has ever played in his career to kind of establish himself as MJ. I agree. He didn't necessarily tell him that he was there, but he is on the way, you know, and in that first game one, dropping 49, you know, off the minutes restriction, you know, just really balled out out there. You know, when, when you guys end up watching this episode, just looking at the highlights and looking at some of the shots that he got, man, he was dominant. You know, I know 86, they probably weren't playing, you know, great defense or drawn up schemes like that. Now they do nowadays. But man, MJ could get any shot that he wanted at any time of the game. And unfortunately, the Bulls did end up losing because at the end of the day, they are playing the Boston Celtics. But dropping 49 in game one uh, really led to probably one of the coolest stories that nobody ever knew about until this episode. Before game two. You know, MJ plays golf with Danny Ainge and Danny Ainge goes on and says, you know, I roughed MJ up a little bit on the on the course and we were talking trash all day. I got a couple bucks out of him and I regret doing that because once they dropped Danny Ainge off, MJ was told Danny Ainge, you know, tell your boy DJ I got something for him tomorrow, right, for game two. And then what ends up happening in game two, Tom? Game two, I think this guy, Michael... Uh, Jordan, I think that's the guy we've been talking about, but he dropped 63 in game two in an overtime loss. But my favorite part of his stat line is he goes 22 of 41 from the field. Guess how many threes he hit, Rain? One, two, zero. Not a single three out of 41 shots. And he drops 63 points on these holes. Man, I thought MJ was good in game one, you know, but. Game two, he really did have something for DJ. Yeah, to follow up a 49-point performance with 63, and I believe till this day that 63 points is the highest point total in a playoff game in NBA history, if I'm not mistaken. And one of my favorite lines that Larry Bird said, he was like, and after that game two, he said, that was God disguised as Michael Jordan, right? And he said, you know, you don't hold the great ones down. And so from that point on, Larry Bird was like, he understood, he knew that, man, this Michael Jordan guy, this guy is special. You know, he's here to stay. He's coming. And there was also a a clip of Magic just saying, you know, them recognizing that MJ is a great player. He's, He's on his way to become a superstar. And like I said earlier, this was MJ's kind of coming out party, right, uh, to the NBA this to me, this playoff series was kind of equivalent to his his game winner when he was back at UNC uh, that we talked about earlier in the '82 season. It was kind of similar to that, like saying, "Hey, um, I'm Michael Jordan. I'm here to stay, and you know, I'm not just some kid from uh, UNC just here to go through the NBA. I'm actually here to, you know, take your guys' thrones, and I'm coming, right? And so, like for him to say, "Tell your boy DJ, I got something for him," and Dennis Johnson was no scrub. This guy was one of the best defenders, um, you know, back then. To have that type of confidence, uh, that just, you know, that just tells it all. So I really liked how you talked about how 
Bird and Magic really kind of noticed MJ coming out on the scene and his playoff performance. That brings me to one of my best coming out parties. I think you can definitely agree with me, Rain, here. 2013, Western Conference, first round, the six-seeded Warriors playing the three-seed Nuggets. And this guy who we know as Steph Curry bursts out really onto the scene with some really great playoff performances. Game two in Denver, down 1-0 in a series. How much does Steph drop? 30-plus. 30. Give me 30 points, 15 assists. That is the birth of our boy, Steph Curry. Obviously, we know the Warriors went on to win that series, and I think that was really the coming out party for not just Steph Curry, but the Warriors in general because they had a really great offseason um, after you know losing in the second round, and they picked up this one guy named Andre Iguodala, and I don't know about you, Rain. Uh, I think that guy's pretty good. Uh, he's won a few titles with us. He's also an Olympic gold medalist, a national champion winner in college. And, you know, after he got schooled by Steph Curry and the Warriors, what do you want to do when someone beats you? You want to join them. You want to go out there and win with them because he's part of what? The team. Thank you. Yeah, and I really like that uh, comparison and parallel because – it is, it, is, it is the same, right? It is a similar situation where this guy, Steph, you know, that's him. That's his coming out party. I remember I went to, I think, game three or game four of that series at Oracle. Man, I, I couldn't hear myself the entire game. But during the third quarter, I think one of those games during one of the third quarter, Steph dropped like 20 plus. And I was just like, man, this guy is unbelievable. Like this is the beginning of something special. And to be able to witness that live, like that was before Steph Curry became Steph Curry. You know what I mean? When everybody knew who he was, um, you know, this probably another episode for another time. But yeah, definitely agree with you on that. Like that was the, to me, that was the beginning of, that was the beginning of the Warriors dynasty, right? That was, that was the coming out party. So yeah, that's a good call on that. Well, although the Bulls ended up losing to the Celtics, which, you know, everyone kind of knew was going to happen. Uh, that's how the 86 season ended for them. But 87 brought a Robin to the Batman, and that was Scottie Pippen. Like you alluded to earlier, Rain, uh, they did trade for Scottie Pippen, who was the fifth overall pick in the draft. They also traded for a little, little more frontline presence, Horace Grant, you know, kind of changed the makeup of the team. Uh, one of the things that they did do, um, which was a little worrisome for me when I first heard about it, was they traded – Charles Oakley uh, to the Knicks, and M uh, Oakley was kind of someone who MJ relied on as a really good teammate. And um, one of the things in the episode is they talked about how Oakley was MJ's protector. Yep. And so that was how they started to rebuild in 1987, and that was the birth of something special. Yeah. One thing to just to wrap up on Oakley that I wanted to call out was one of the funniest scenes of the episode – was when, when Scotty was a rookie, you know, he thought that, you know, he said he wanted to be, he was better than Michael Jordan, and he was super, super confident in himself. Um, the one scene that really had me dying, though, was when Charles Oakley was like, hey, you know, you're a rookie, so remember that, right? Remember that you're a rookie, and then Pippen's like, yeah, and then Oakley just, like, slaps him across the face in the <laughs> locker room. Like, that was, like, the funniest thing ever, because can you imagine, like, Nowadays, if Steph or Clay or Draymond like just slap like Jordan Poole, right, or <laughs> Eric Pascal, right, like, 
Come on, man. I don't know. I just thought that was hilarious. I had to call that out. That is a really funny thing to think about. Just Jordan Poole getting slapped. I'd, I'd, I'd pay some money to see that happen, actually. But All right. I know we got a lot of really great content in episodes one and two. Episodes three and four are actually going to be airing on ESPN this Sunday. So hopefully you guys tune in. And we had a really great time breaking down the first two episodes with y'all. Hopefully three and four are just as good. But I think they're going to even better, honestly, than the first two. Yeah, thank you guys uh, for joining us. Appreciate y'all taking the time to listen. Hope everybody's staying safe, staying healthy out there. And we'll see you on the other side.